If you have your Bible, I would ask you to open to the Old Testament, turning to the section of the Minor Prophets. Just before the New Testament, we are going to the probably the smallest book in the Bible, one of the smallest book in the Bible, between Zephaniah and Zechariah. I thought in this uh, new this uh, evening service. Uh, that we could go through starting from shorter books, and this one in particular is uh, just before the New Testament. And we will do it in two parts, chapter 1 today, and uh, tomorrow, uh, next uh, Sunday we will go to chapter 2. So the words of our text tonight will be from Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 to 15. This is the Lord speaking. In the second year of King Darius... In the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, This people says, The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you yourself to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus is the Lord of hosts. Consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but you do not have enough. You drink, but you have not filled with drink. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. And he who has earned wages earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the mountain and bring wood and build a temple, that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much, but indeed it came to little, and when you brought it home, it blew away, I blew away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because of my house that is in ruin, while every one of you runs to his own house, therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a draw on the land and the mountains, on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest, with all the remnants of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God has sent him. And the people feared the presence of of the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year. Of King Darius. If you're following in your Pew Bible, it's in page 497. Charles Spurgeon said once, We need to have a church in which all the members do something, in which all do all that they can, in which all are always doing all that they can. For this is what our Lord deserves to have from a living loving people bought with his precious blood if he saved me 
I will serve him forever and ever. And whatever lies in my power to do for his glory, that shall be my delight to do and do at once. With these words, uh, we also recognize in this text that there are indeed people who will do anything to be able to do nothing, to live in complacency. In fact, uh, what is laid out for us is dull attitudes and that cause a drain. And the first symptom of such down spiral of laziness is satisfaction with things as they are. When good enough becomes today's watchword and tomorrow's standard. Complacency makes feel, people fear the unknown, mistrust the untried, and abhor the new. And so the easiest course is actually a course downhill. And you gather strength, false strength, from only looking back. Friends, this can be true even in the church, as our text says. To be complacent and failing to answer the call from God, own mouth in Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 to 15. That God's house must be rebuilt. I chose this book because I feel this, it's very providential in our situation. As we start this uh, journey together, and it's also the shortest, one of the shortest books of the Bible. Some has called this a momentous little fragment within the minor prophets that together with Zechariah, Malachi, is one of the last Old Testament prophets. We saw this morning, we talked about those 400 years of silence. Well, Haggai is just one of the last one of the prophets of the Old Testament. He ministered when Israel had just come back from the exile in Babylon. There have been several waves of exiles coming back restorate, with a restoration into the land. And therefore, he's a, together with Malachi and Zechariah, is a prophet after the exile. Whereas Jeremiah and Isaiah are before the exile. He ministered between 520 and 516 before Christ. And uh, the first wave of Israelites had come back to uh, Jerusalem from Babylon with, uh, with Haggai. Later on, Ezra will be the second wave. And then Nehemiah, the third wave of exile coming back to Jerusalem. So this is the beginning of the restoration of Israel back into the land, the tribes of Judah. In fact, Haggai almost paralleled Zechariah in many ways. And ten years after the Israel had come back into the land, Cyrus had already given, the pagan king Cyrus had already given authorization to rebuild the temple, to come back to Jerusalem. And... Uh, that is because God had not forgotten the promise that he gave to Abraham. That God was going to bless Israel again. In fact, the name Agai actually means the festival of the Lord. It's a moment of joy, you could say. Of rejoicing over coming back to the land. They, the, the exile had unfortunately brought them to misery as we know. Can you imagine them coming back to the land with all the dis destruction of, of Jerusalem? The temple completely destroyed. Boy, it's raining a lot. 
And so it's like coming into a city after a war and it's completely destroyed. Everything is unsettled. There are pagan enemies all around you. And you are coming back to a land that is in complete ruin. And worst of all, where the temple used to be, there's a heap of ruin. This is a discouraging desolation. And God has sent a, a famine, an economic crisis, and disappointment after disappointment to get his people attention. Not to fall back in the same problems which had brought them to the exile in the first place. The focus so far had been to rebuilding the life of these people. They come, they want to rebuild homes, they want to rebuild budgets, they want to rebuild their own desires and wishes. However, the symbol of God's covenant with His people, the temple, was still in ruin. This is already the second project of reconstruction of the, the temple. Right around the time of Ezra chapter 5, the foundations had been laid of the temple. And some celebration had taken place in Ezra 5, if you remember. However, some Samaritans, some uh, people in the land had opposed the work of God. And so the construction had stopped. The government had ordered to stop the building of the church. But God commands their people to disobey those laws, un unrighteous laws. In fact, providentially in time, he turns the government to the favor of his people. He provides the tools. You see how Satan, who wanted to hinder the worship of God in Jerusalem, that's what he hates the most, we'll see next time. He got played by the same trick. And so, the people of God are discouraged. The in initial enthusiasm being quenched by this uh, stopping of the works. For 16 years, the morale is down. And only God's intervention can bring a change so that they can fight back and build God's house. This is, uh, the focus is both on the social and the ci civic aspect as we find in Ezra and Nehemiah. But here in Agai, we have a small picture of the spiritual component of that restoration in the temple. God sends His word to encourage God's people in their work for the Lord. The burden of His message is for the people of God, therefore, tonight. To consider your ways. Three times in our text you heard that. Consider your ways. Consider your way. God is calling you and me as His people to repent from wrong priorities in our lives. To serve God above all else. So that He may dwell again. So that we may experience His favor. Consider first of all. We will see three things. We will see first of all the chastisement that had taken place uh, in Israel this time. Verses 1 through 6 speaks of this. The second year of King Darius. Darius was the great-grandson of Cyrus. As we said, Cyrus had given the authorization for the Jews to come back from, from Babylon. And now, there is a negligence in building God's house among God's people. Cyrus had found the decree of... Um, Darius had found the decree of Cyrus and ordered that this construction of the temple may continue. So, 
There was a certain stability thanks to God's intervention, even among pagan governors. And the building could have been undertaken without resistance. However, this was not so the case. Our text says that, unfortunately, the house was not built. And, and the prophecy comes to two leaders. See, leaders are first responsible of this. Zerubbabel and Joshua. Zerubbabel is the offspring of Babylon, as is, is the name, name means. He's the son of Babel, of Babylon. Which means he was born in exile and he was part of that second wave of, of refugees that had come back from uh, Babylon. However, Haggai had already come and Zerubbabel is, seems to be a central figure here. He's a leader of Judah for the, for the, from the lineage of David for restora- restoring that kingship. And then you have Joshua, the high priest. So the prophecies, both for the religious figures, but also for the civic authorities in a war, post-war environment. You see that church and state are both brought face to face with the word of God to, uh, in this old covenant to rebuild the temple of God. And verse 2 tells us, you see there, thus speaks the Lord of hosts. Because this task is beyond human capacity, we need to be reminded of the sovereignty of God, that He's sovereign even among worldly, earthly powers, and He's able to fulfill His work through the church. But here is a prophecy of almost a contention with God's people, that God is coming down, He has almost a disputation with His people. Because people were saying to one another, Oh, the time has not yet come for us to build a house, the temple of God. This is not the opportune time. It's a very hopeless statement. I mean, I remember that movie, Shrek, where in that little cartoon, that there's always that question, are we arrived yet? Not yet. Are we arrived yet? Are we not yet? You know, at the hundredth time that you say that, he gets mad and upset. And this is what they're doing to God. They're saying, no, it's not yet the time, Lord. It's not yet the time. Maybe later. Maybe I'll serve you later. The time... Is not yet for the house of God to be built. Laziness. Procrastination. What better time than now? That God has brought them back from exile. I mean the, the pagan king Cyrus had granted them permission 18 years before this. To build a temple. He gave them money. He gave them material. So in, in answer to this excuse... The word of the Lord in verse 3 comes very sharply to Agai, the prophet. He doesn't even use the first person. I mean, he's the one that writes this prophecy. Because just like John the Baptist this morning, he doesn't want to be the point. The point here for him is God and the honor due to him, which now is in dispute by the people of Israel. And so, yes, he emphasizes his role as a prophet, perhaps because... People were questioning his calling. But he's not the point. And Ezra and Nehemiah, we know, had faced many opposers to the work of the temple, right? And verse 4, verse 4 gives us the rebuttal of God to the claim of, of the God's people in the same term. Oh, you say it's not time to build the temple? Let me ask you this way. Is it time for you to build your houses, your covered Paneled houses 
What is in view here is new homes with nice roofs, well-built houses, almost luxurious, nicely decorated houses. It's an investment which, given the situation of destruction around Jerusalem, is far greater than what is necessary to actually have a roof over your head and just be able to survive. Now, that's not necessarily a problem, but the problem is this. While my house lays in ruin. See that? It's a play on word here. You build your own houses. My house, says the Lord, is in ruin. It still looks like a heap of rubble. Even years have passed. There has been already a second wave of people returning. You claim to be unable to raise the dwelling place of the Lord. But you still find the time, the energy, and the resources to squander on yourselves. I mean, there was a time in Exodus chapter 36 where the people of God, you know, Moses had almost stopped the people of God because they were bringing too many things to, to the construction of the tabernacle, right? But this is not the case. They were unwilling to do anything. Now, there's a certain pe- a town in Italy which had, has, has reached a notorious reputation widespread to be a very rich town and yet very stingy. I don't know if there is an equivalent in the United States for this. But you get the idea. That the people of God, in this particular moment, after having faced the exile, having come back to the land, they're still walking in selfishness. The void. Look at the void. And the result of this, because of our negligence, verse 5 tells us, consider your ways. Once again, three times. In verse 5, in verse 7, consider your ways. That means set your heart to think and examine and scrutinize what you're doing. When, when the Bible speaks of your ways in the Old Testament, it doesn't mean a road. But it means your manner of life, your conduct, your behavior. Give careful thought of what you are doing. Examine your heart, yes. But here in context, as you look at the following verses, it's, it's consider and set your mind on what has become of you as a result and fruit of your sinful conduct. I mean, don't you see what is happening? Let's look at the result. Verse 6. You have sown much but brought in little. This is a double dilemma. You had an expectation for your future. You had an expectation for your business, but there is a disappointing reality here. That you have brought in little. You have eaten and you don't have enough to eat. You drink and you are still thirsty. You clothe and you are still cold. You earn a wage and you have a bag with holes. It's like your pocket is filled with holes. Leaky and rusted out buckets are in your pockets. It's almost as if the cost of living became so high that it was not nearly enough to provide. But why? Because God had withheld his blessing. It was Lester Roloff who said once, Churches become poor if they become rich and however care not for the the, the people in need and, and, and the situation especially in the church. They think that is a bad excuse is better than doing nothing, right? 
Not so with God. At times, friends, we're called to consider our ills and even the dissatisfaction that comes from those ills as a divine call back, a divine chastisement for our having wrong priorities in our life. We have wrong priorities where our things are more important than the things of God. Consider your past behavior and your present experience. That's what Haggai is telling us. It's so easy, friends, to become so imbalanced in living out God's will for our lives. That is a temptation that we must always guard against us. You see, ruin in life does not happen in a moment. It's a slow fade. It's a slow Having, I, got, I got no time for church today. I got no thanks for reading the Bible this day. Uh, things begin to go downhill. You have less and less time for God. And you have less and less time for, 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 for His Word, for prayer. And guess what? Things in life get harder and harder. You don't even know why. You start to compromise, cut corners. You start to isolate from other Christians. And more and more, you enter into a dangerous spot. And you don't consider. You keep going on as if nothing happened. But friends, don't be surprised if disaster comes. And some Christians, even today, do not understand the times that we are living. We see, but we do not look. We think, but we do not consider even just after God have given us a great deliverance in our lives. We may go back our way and be self-satisfied. I received my answer prayer. Now I go back into my priorities. And I postpone. I choose comfort over obedience. May never be. And that is because of misplaced priorities in our life. That we actually are not trusting in the word of God and in the power of God to perform what he said he will. We are unthankful to the one who gave us all things. Or we procrastinate our duties. Yet we want to buy our second or third car. We want to enjoy retirement plans. And then the church suffers. How many churches are in this condition in this land while the church lies in ruin? And that brings displeasure to God. That brings lack of consistency over what we claim to believe. It was Benjamin Franklin who said, I never knew a man who was good at making excuses, who was good at doing anything else. Oh, I, you know, I got this excuse. I got delay obedience is no obedience at all. And the problem is when the idols of our hearts blind our way. When we like our stuff, don't we? We focus on our business, but God's business is neglected. If that is the case, there is a misplaced priority. We are ignoring God. You know, we can also disguise this under the righteous duties of our life. Oh, I got to provide for my family, man. I got to provide. It's my job. Yes, okay. But if you're not careful, then it can be a slippery slope. And that was the case in, even in the time of Haggai as the opposition from men. The fact that you have to deal with other sinful beings then let these people like, I'm not going to get into this. And it's like, no. We have to recover our zeal and serve the Lord. There's a time where we must take the risk to even appear as if we set aside things 
that are supposed to be important because there is a greater important thing, and that is serving God. And look at also the, the fact from these first verses that you eat the fruit of your choices, friend. He's, this is how God's providence sometimes works. If, if we are selfish, God responds with, to us according to our selfishness. Remember this, says the Bible, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. 2 Corinthians 9.6 When you're so focused upon your own satisfaction and you fail to flourish exactly because of your focusing upon your satisfaction. You lay treasures for yourself, but you're not rich toward God. Until God has to tell to your idolatry, to your face. And there's judgment at time that God withhold this blessing. Whereas, as we will see, obedience is a game changer. But that all of this is a signal that there might be a more intimate dissatisfaction in the soul that we have to address. That we have really placed our efforts, our energies in things that do not satisfy. If there's dissatisfaction in the church, we must go back to commune with God wholeheartedly. And when we do that, it changes everything. So let, let us really examine our hearts and realize that something is missing. And also consider why it is missing. That we spend money but have little to show. We may fill out plates but never get filled. We may drink but have always thirst. We may buy clothes after clothes but you can't get enough. Something is off. Something is missing. Friend, take a hard look at your life. And look at your life and says, how does this fit with God? And the fact that He is Lord of my life is supposed to be. There are times when indeed we should factor the question, is God trying to tell us something? Now with this thought, let's go to the second consideration. Consider the reason for this chastisement. Verses 7 to 11. And the reason is that God's house is in ruin. The same word of first, verse 5. Consider your ways. Starts here in verse 7. You go up and build up my house. Verse 7 speaks of the hills where in the hill country of Israel to gather wood to build a roof of the temple. So that God can take pleasure in his house. So that this will be what is acceptable to him right now. That you reshift your focus toward me, says the Lord. That you do it for God so that he is glorified. So that the glory may descend upon this temple in, in Jerusalem. And so they will treat the Lord as Lord. That means that you obey what he dictates. You get the job done and I will be pleased. That was the word that was given to uh, a, a, a saint of old who said, you know, God told him, go and repair my house. The house is in ruin." And that was all that it was necessary. And he left all his riches and went back to fix that house. So consider the situation. There is a discrepancy between all the hopes and, and, and the blessings that you were expecting. And the, the fact of curses and things going wrong between your expectation of honor and the reality of disaster coming upon you. You look for much, says again our text in verse 9. You expected abundance. 
You had great ambitions about yourself, didn't you? But it came too little. And when, when it came to something, it says, I blew it away. It was the Lord's. You, know you want to know why though? Because my house is still in ruins. And everyone runs to his own house. Everyone busies himself with the, his own things. His private manners. They don't care about the church. The only concern is for their business, their homes. And they get caught up in taking care of themselves. Therefore, the result is our lives are in ruin. Verse 10 and 11. The heavens and an earth have we tooled, dew and fruits. Verse 11, I called a draw, a lack, of, a lack of rain, devastation upon crops. All the, all the fruits of your labor was in vain. And why? To match the tight-fisted stinginess of his people, God has to apply the same logic, withholding the very same blessing that they were looking for. Everything was lost. Obstacles on every corner. The only solution, turn back to me, says the Lord. The only solution at times we consider our lack of diligence on the things of God. That might be the real reason behind all of our ills. All, all of our things going wrong. We, we lack initiative. This is an issue of priorities once again. I mean, would you live in a barrack without even the primary necessities? Now, you care for yourself, your family. How much more with God and the things of God? The church, missions, and believers who are in need. How much more the things of God? That was the problem of Israel in this point. That they needed discipline. And friends, discipline starts in our prayer. That's why we have a Wednesday night prayer meeting. And we see it as the, 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 the starting ground. And it's not just a meeting where we have a business about organizational factor as, you know, we, we're not going there to ask, oh, Lord, give us some. We don't go to God and say, oh, we want to do this. We say, Lord, we are listening to you and we want to know what you say. I was listening to a sermon by Yen Paisley on this. And he says that we need the Lord to awaken us. And so what he did in his church, he, he didn't do like dry prayers, but prayers with tears, long prayers. And he was a Lord Fill these seats. And they prayed hours after hours after hours. And you know what happened? Then he said, we put feet to our prayers. And we start knocking doors. And, and we started to think, even the worst sinners and drunkard in the area. And we're going to reach out to him. Actually, he came to their prayer meeting. And they were shocked. They saw it was a miracle. But again, they, they had target prayer. That's why Leonard Ravenhill says, Prayer fuels the work, but work also fuels prayer. There is an active pursuit of God that in your life starts in your life of prayer. And then you serve Him with passion when you give Him all from a surrendered heart and not just your leftovers, friends. Because that is what glorifies God. I do recognize my own limitations. I'm not just telling you. Like sometimes we lack initiative in the things of God. But we must get our hands off our pockets and take action. 
Because the result here is also the lack of God's favor, as we saw in our text. That blessings are experienced, particularly here in the Old Covenant, there were blessings tied to obedience. We depend on the living God for our every breath, don't we? So we shouldn't keep doing what we are doing and then find ourselves stuck. We must realize, and Israel was failing to realize here, that God is a holy God. He's perfect. He demands that we reflect His image in the way we live. Otherwise, all sort of ills had come upon them. And we could say the same thing about our society today. That all these ills might as well be a sign of God's displeasure over this land. Now we can be anxious and try to fix it on our own. You know, there's that. But it doesn't accomplish much, doesn't it? No. We turn to God and let Him do the rest. Consider also, last, third point. We saw the chastisement. We saw the reason. Now we consider the obedience. Verses 12 to 15. That's the sweetest part of our text. When we work, the church works with a unified purpose. Look at verse 12. A result of this powerful and persuasive prophecy from Agai, there is a both spiritual and secular leaders are coming together. All the remnants after the judgment that have come back to Jerusalem, they this therefore look at it as a collective effort, as a church effort, not just one individual. What do they do? Verse 12, they obeyed the voice of the Lord. They began to have a new drastic change of priorities in their life. They respond favorably to the message of God. Haggai knew he was sent from God and the people believe. And they, what? Our text says, feared the presence of the Lord. That means they show reverence to God. Why? Literally, this means they fear from the face of Yahweh. They were filled with this reverential fear. Why? Because they realized the presence of God among them through this message. That God was speaking to their situation. They had a face-to-face awakening to God's holy presence in their midst. And they begin to respect God. They begin to worship God in earnest. With all of their hearts. What is the reason behind rebuilding God's temple? If you don't have the resolution to serve Him first. And not vaguely. Not partly. But completely. With reverence. With true repentance. Our text even says in verse 14 that God stirred them their spirit up. He sparked enthusiasm and wakes them up. I mean, this is... We could say one of the last spiritual awakening in the Old Testament. This same word, by the way, was used to stir up the spirit of King Cyrus, a pagan, unbelieving king who had given the decree to let all the Israelites feel free to come back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. God has encouraged and awakened his church from his lethargy. And, the, and therefore, that leads to verse 13. The assurance of God's presence when we obey. The prophecy is not over. This is not just a rebuke, but also an encouragement. Why? Because they obey, but also because they are discouraged, okay? 
God had chastised them. But they were also coming back from exile. They were facing the ruins of Jerusalem. And they were in a vulnerable defense against enemies from within and enemies from without. These are very unfavorable circumstances. Now what? Because you repented, because you obey me, even if you're weak, even if you don't have the strength, I will be with you. I am with you, says our text, verse 13. Isn't that the most encouraging word that even a child can hear when my daughter hears mommy's here, like the encouragement. But this is the Lord of hosts. That the promise that God had given to Abraham, that I will be with you, as we saw in Sunday school this morning, is confirmed to Israel even after the desolation of exile. Friends, when we obey the Lord, then we can be assured of His presence with us. We can be sure of change to come. That finally, when you decide to get serious about the Word of God, when you decide to say, I'm done with this, I'm done with this apathy. I'm done with compromises. I'm done with looking only for my selfish gain. I want to give it to the Lord. That will transform your life. When you repent and obey, then God's blessing can flow. When you tremble at His Word, when you worship God, and you make the worship of God your top priority, friends, God will help you. In all these problems in any other area, in fact, they will become so secondary that you wouldn't even care about them. All these anxieties about, yeah, but I got to do this, I got to do that. Trust the Lord and obey Him. Friends, this book is an anomaly. I want to say it is a very exceptional thing that is happening before our eyes. Because the majority of the Old Testament prophets preached the message of repentance and no one turned from their ways. But in this text, we have a positive response. The message of God gets through. They obey. They obey. The word of God finds fertile soul. This is an encouraging light for us. I mean, oh, friends, what a joy for any pastor when people repent at his message and obey God. And it's a fast, quick response. Confessing. Turning away from it. Change of priority. That's what happens when we come to Christ. But isn't it wonderful and sweet? When you see a person a few months ago was walking there and backsliding and going through the deep hole. And then all of a sudden, by the power of God, he's transformed. All his priorities are gone. He's changed. Now God is everything. That is the joy. The true unparalleled success It is only second to what happens to Jonah when he preaches to Nineveh. That everyone repents immediately, the whole town. It doesn't happen often, I want you to know. But this is the rare cases when true revival takes place. And God, by His Spirit, awakens His people. And then you can be sure that He will not leave you. In times of turmoil, war, destruction... And even righteous chastisement of God. When you cling to his promise of Isaiah 41. Isaiah 41, 10. I, I bring this promise to the Lord in prayer every day. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. How many times God repeats this word, I am with you in the Bible? You want to know how many times? More than 8,000 times. 
Apparently he thought that it was an important reminder for us in times of discouragement when we feel in despair, when we feel that he's absent. The same people, the same word in next time, next Sunday we'll see in chapter 2 verse 4. I am with you. I am with you, says the Lord of hosts. Even if the temple was still destroyed, God's presence was still with them. And he called them to go as he calls us to go and abound in the work of the Lord. We are called to go and preach, herald that gospel. But we are also assured of Christ's presence with us until the end of this age. Right? And remember, we, me and you, are the temple of God. That is what the church is. What we engage in the church is the building of a holy sanctuary in the Lord, the body of Christ. And the Lord of the church is Christ. And therefore, our churches must submit to serve Him by what? Engaging in building each other up. Mutually encouraging each other. When someone does something good, when someone needs an encouragement because he's in despair, we mutually encourage each other. We can share our possessions. I mean, I cannot believe how thankful me and my wife are for what you guys have done in the past week. I mean, we are we're shocked for all those things. But again, when you get discouraged about the state of this country, the state of a church that looks in ruin, you must envision the day. When finally, everything will be made well by Jesus Christ. But we start here by laying our treasure in heaven, not on this earth. Friends, there is such a thing as eternal rewards for those who serve God in the church. And there's also such a thing as eternal losses for those who selfishly live for themselves. Laying treasures on earth. I know it looks, I know the world told you to do that. But it's the most foolish thing in the world because moth comes to that treasure and it devours it. But the treasures on heaven are forever. We can be sure that also he will empower us, friends. We see here in God's saying, I am with you, that the Holy Spirit is the source of our work for God. This is nothing that we can do in our strength what does God says? I will build my church. This will be God's work. He will build his church. We are just his instrument. But he must inspire you and me tonight to the special work that he sets before us. Friends, what do we conclude from this first chapter of a guy? Put God first in your life. Abandon any apathy. Abandon any indifference that makes you have wrong priorities to the, toward the things of God. Realize there are real consequences for your decisions. There are consequences even in your life. That when the church disobeys God, even society at large is not able to flourish. But when you put God's program, God's house... God's worship first, then even your present poverty and failures can give way to his spiritual blessing, first of all. And at time, even 
his confirming hand in our material needs. Yes, this at times involves getting involved in the church through building projects, giving, tithing. But the focus is not just, you know, decorating the sanctuary or things of this nature. But the focus of the church is to see men, dead men come to life. Conversions. Revival. And, and not just giving to God in a magical way as the prosperity preachers tell us and abuse this text by saying, oh, if you will give money to God, then he's going to give you a hundred time and much for all your selfish desires. Which again shows how inappropriate the application there is. Israel at this point is using resources to build a temple not for self-gratification, but for God's glory. By faith in to God as using the kingdom resources that God has assigned us. Because Jesus told us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. All these other things shall be given to you as well. But first his kingdom and his righteousness. He told us to pray to send out laborers into the harvest. So why are, not, are we not making that sacrifice to be a laborer? Friends, widespread selfishness is a problem in society, but widespread selfishness in the church is a double problem because it's contagious. When you have people that are more Christians, self-professing Christians, more interested in their own things than God, they got to turn around and go back to God to have a right priority. But here's what happened, friends. When we respond rightly, like... The people in Haggai's day did as a church. Then God's people listened to God's word delivered through God's prophet Haggai. Then God's blessings are sure to follow. But we must put first things first. Let us pray.